ER Doc, Phoenix, Arizona. Welcome to the fourth episode of a Burnt Podcast. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve Sample. I'm an ER Doc out here in Jasper, Indiana. Um, thanks for sticking with us this far. Uh, today, we've got a pretty cool guy uh, coming on with us named Josh Mugel. Uh, sounds like Bugle, um, which I had to learn for the podcast. Um, he's a pretty cool guy. I've been following him on Twitter for at least a couple of years. Um, and I know Brandon and I have been talking about how, uh, in general physicians and particularly, um, emergency physicians, we like to run towards things that, uh, other specialties, uh, like to hide in the closet and suck their thumb and pray they go away. Um, and Josh, uh, has had a pretty unique experience, right, Brandon? Yeah. Yeah. Not only, uh, did he do this for COVID, which we'll get into, but he, <laughs> willingly walks into a, a room with an Ebola patient without any PPE at all, which to me is, is next level. Like, you know, when I think of running towards the fire, uh, you know, like we do in emergency medicine, it's usually traumas or, or something that really we're not necessarily as affected by, but like you run into an Ebola room. I mean, that's a, that's not necessarily a death sentence, but where he was at potentially is like, and he, he went in there without any, yeah, no, Josh is a, is likely a little bit insane. Uh, and when you hear your when you hear his story, I think everybody who's listening will agree because there is something different um, from an intellectual and from a just kind of a self preservation uh, point of view. Yes, I run to traumas, I run to cardiac arrests, I run to those because I know that I have a skill set that I get to use. And that's, it, it's a cool skill set. It's what separates emergency medicine from most other fields as we get to do that. But running into a room with someone who can kill you by breathing or getting their body fluids on you is a whole new level, uh, really. And uh, that's something that I had to struggle with early on just in COVID um, when it was still an unknown. Uh, Josh just happened to be in Africa, in Liberia, uh, when the first Ebola case came to the city that he was in. And he'll tell you guys about that. Um, and you will likely hear some uh, some shocked noises coming from myself and Brandon throughout it. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I, I got a, I have a little bit of a story. When I was, a, I think it was a fourth year med student, I was doing a rotation in Costa Rica, which a statement in itself is pretty wild that, that I was able to do that. We did a peds rotation on there, me and a friend of mine. And we were on the east coast of Costa Rica, and Costa Rica itself is a pretty um, peaceful. Like they don't have a military, and uh, but the, but the east side is a little bit more kind of drug cartel trade, that sort of thing. Yeah, on the Caribbean, Jamaica sort of feel. Not that those are necessarily dangerous places, but um, and we were at like a bar. I don't know if you'd even call it a club, but there's some you know dancing, music, all that stuff is pretty crowded. And gunshots went off, right? And so we're in, a, mm -hmm. we're in Costa Rica, far from home. Gunshots go off. And where does Brandon go, right? Towards where the people are that got shot. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, that was when I I think I had just finished doing all my applications for emergency medicine, and we were just waiting on the match. And I'm running towards the, the gunshots, and everyone they had to run up and get me and grab me because you're an idiot. 
like <laughs> running yeah. that. So I, I kind of identify with this, this, I got to go check this out because maybe it's something I can do to help situation that, uh, you know, Josh while there's still a shooter in the area. <laughs> yeah. Really, really dumb in, in retrospect. Scene safety, scene safety. Yeah, I think there's probably a little bit of alcohol involved with that one. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Yeah. So Josh, uh, Josh has, uh, been continually running into fires, um, that he didn't create, you know, he went from Ebola to, uh, heading up to New York in the first, you know, one of the first hit squads to go up and help, uh, relieve, uh, relieve the physicians, uh, up in New York city while New York city was on fire and the rest of the country watched. And then after that, he moved from his home in Indy to a, uh, town in, you know, semi-rural Georgia, uh, to start up a residency program in emergency medicine. So he keeps giving back, keeps running into fires, and keeps uh, doing it well. So I hope you guys in, enjoy the podcast with him today. All right. Without further ado, here comes Josh. Okay, so we're super excited. Uh, with us today is Josh Mugel. Uh, sounds like Bugle. Um, and he's had a really interesting career. Over the last couple of podcasts, we've been talking about people's entrances into medicine and and the careers that we've uh, the careers that we've kind of built for ourselves. And Josh has a really unique story. He's another non traditional a non traditional transplant into medicine. So we're going to let him tell the story. And Josh, if you don't mind, if you just want to introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself, and we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, my name is Josh Mugel. Um, I'm an ER doc uh, and with a specialty focus in disaster medicine. Um, I've been involved in resident education, which is my, my passion within uh, emergency medicine, uh, pretty much for my whole career. And so for the past year and a half, um, I have been living in Northeast Georgia, where I moved um, um, from Indianapolis to, to start a new residency program. So that's kind of been my, uh, my consuming passion for the last year and a half. And that, that's, that's what I've been working on down here. Yeah, that's super exciting. We'll talk to you a little bit about, I, I want to talk to you a little offline about resident education as well. Brandon, you had something. Yeah. So this disaster medicine, obviously did an entire fellowship. Did you ever foresee having to do what we've been doing for the past year? Um, you know, frankly, when I, uh, so I, the, the whole reason I did a disaster fellowship was just because I wanted a job at my current site and they said you had to be fellowship trained. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I, I, I had, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like this passion that I was going to do disaster medicine, but I looked at the list of fellowships in emergency medicine, and I didn't find anything that particularly appealed to me. Um, and so the reason I did disaster more than anything was I got to design my own fellowship. So I created the ah. curriculum, which was something that really, really appealed to me. Um, I recruited the faculty, uh, you know, I kind of put together, you know, what I thought it would be like, and then I did the fellowship. Um, and so I kind of learned about it as I went along. Um, and so as part of the fellowship, um, I, I happened to be involved, like we were talking offline, um, with Ebola. And so uh, as I learned about disasters, my main learning focus was around epidemics. And so um, the, the, the experience I have most is with, with epidemics rather than the other types of disasters we think of, like, you know, mass casualties or nuclear weapons or whatever. Sure. So you were the man for the moment uh, for what we're experiencing right now, for sure. So I know you were in, um, speaking of Ebola, it's crazy because, I mean, as physicians, there are a bazillion physicians and very few of us have actually put our hands on Ebola. It's a story that we read in, in you know, horror novels. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your experiences over in Africa and how you how you got there and what it was like for you when you were there. Yeah, so I, I'm not, you know, I, I actually, I was there during the start of the Ebola pan, or epidemic. 
Um, I wasn't there as a responder, like a lot of the, the people we see, and I actually did very little, but um, as part of my disaster fellowship, I happened to be working at a hospital in Liberia, the capital of Mon uh, Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, um, at one of their main hospitals. And, um, you know, I was there for other stuff before the, the epidemic started. Um, and then I was there in, in June of 2014 when uh, Ebola was kind of percolating up in the northern part of the country. Um, and we just randomly happened to get the first patient that um, presented to a major metropolitan uh, hospital in, in, our, in our hospital in Liberia. And so being a disaster fellow, I heard there was this um, potential Ebola case uh, in, the, in, the, in the, the emergency department. Uh, so I, I went with uh, one of the ED docs who was there, the, the medicine doc, and then the, the head of the ED. So the, the four of us um, went and, and quickly assessed this patient and determined that we had likely Ebola um, and tried to care for him there. So you did exactly the opposite of what any normal human being would do. You heard there may be Ebola and you said, let's go see it. It really pissed off my wife. Uh, yeah, I bet. My wife would have my kicked my ass. What, what the wife thought. Yeah, so, so actually, the funny thing was, a week before I had been um, robbed or burgled or whatever the word is, um, and I called my wife and I said, hey, you know, I lost my passport and all my money and my computer, and um, and she was kind of like, you know, when are you leaving that country? And then, so like a week later, I'm calling her, I was like, hey, uh, don't be too mad, but, um, you know, I just saw an Ebola patient down here, and, um, you know, I had hands-on, uh, you know, care of this guy. And, and, you know, this was before Ebola was like, had hit the country, so like, we had no PPE. Um, you know, we had gloves and, you know, the, oh you know, my God, so you weren't in a biohazard suit when you saw no, this. Guy. No, 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 Christ. Okay. And it's, it's, it's Liberia and, um, it's in a, a non-air-conditioned hospital. So everybody's just pouring sweat. Um, you know, the patients, you know, sick of shit and there's just body fluids everywhere. And, you know, we're in the, 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 the bad thing about it was, um, he was in this small area that was this emergency department area with a lot of other people. There were like a lot of other patients. And so, we're, you know, our first step was like, hey, let's get this guy out of this area and into the small back room. Um, but the bed he was on was too wide for the door. And so we were like, okay, we have to physically pick up this mattress that he's on, the four of us. Oh my God. While just wearing gloves and a mask? Like just, just a regular gloves. surgical mask? Would you have on N95? Just normal old surgical mask and, and gloves. And we did. Um, got him. We picked him up, moved him, and he died ten minutes later. So I mean, it was just... oh my God! So he was at massive, oh, massive he was... infectivity. And he, he'd been laying in the in the emergency department. This was like seven a.m. He had been laying in the emergency department for you know six hours. He presented like midnight, um, you know, before. So he'd just been laying there, and people kind of thought he had cholera or something like that until they realized that um, he had potentially Ebola. So what is the f my my distant memory wants to tell me that the fatality rate, the case fatality rate of Ebola is something like 60 or 70 percent. Is Does that track or is it more than that, less than that? It depends on the country. It, it, it's all flu, it's all fluid loss. And so like in a third, you know, in a low income country like, um, you know, like Liberia, where they don't have, you know, high levels of care, then it's yeah, it's in the 60, 70 range because they can't keep up with the, the fluid loss and the, um, you know, the electrolyte loss versus in, in the U.S., um, they were predicting in, in high income countries, the, the rate would be, you know, under 10%. That's interesting. Okay. Okay.
So you had this this experience with this outbreak in Liberia. How does this translate to to everything that you've now been through in 2020? So let's take us through that. that yeah. So, so interestingly, I became you know so because of this one patient and because I kind of helped this hospital prepare for it, I became a little bit of an infectious disease expert when I got back to Indiana, where my job was at the time. Um, I worked with the State Department of Health um, and and got to be a um, a consultant for them to help them prepare for the whole statewide, you know, if Ebola came here and I got to work with my hospital's infection control team um, and, and their special pathogens unit and, and whatnot. So I got a little bit more experience in designing systems and, and whatnot. Um, frankly, uh, you know, when, 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 um, what disease are we on now? COVID, when COVID hit um, <laughs> in 2020, um, you know, there, you know, I got to participate a little bit in the in my hospital's design work um, in terms of, you know, how are we going to prepare for this? Uh, you know, what kind of PPE do we need? What's the flow in the emergency department going to look like? Um, but frankly, you know, it got to the point where, you know, if you remember, um, most hospitals were suffering this like huge decline in volumes um, in in the early part of the pandemic. Um, and so our hospital was the same way. We're in Northeast Georgia. We weren't New York. We weren't Seattle. Um, and we were seeing 50% patient volumes. And so we had to cut, you know, shifts, uh, you know, our docs weren't doing anything. So honestly, in the month of, of March and April, I was sitting there doing very, very little work and New York was getting slammed. Um, and, uh, the, the New York city hospital system put out a call for volunteers and, and basically I was sitting on my, my thumbs doing nothing. So frankly, my, my work in Liberia served me very little, you know, in, in terms of, uh, preparing to go to New York, but I just happened to be an ER doc and they happened to need ER docs and I was doing nothing. So, so I ended up going. So you went to New York, where or were you in Manhattan in Queens? Where were you located? Uh, I was in Metropolitan Hospital, which is a, um, you know, on the border of Manhattan and uh, Harlem, East Harlem. Okay, right there up on the north side. Yeah. yeah I stayed. Okay. Yeah, it, it, it was crazy early in the pandemic. Uh, you know, there was all this fear and we watched New York burn and we watched Seattle yeah. burn. And, we, I, you know, we were in the middle of the country and we did nothing. Like yeah. it was actually the most rewarding medicine I've ever practiced because the people who came needed me and all of the bullshit was gone. Mm -hmm. There was no, I've had toe pain for 20 years and I want a 30 second opinion, you know, uh, but it was rough on the hospital income and stuff. And, and I think a lot of us, Brandon, I don't know about you, but I had that instinctual urge to go to New York, but I didn't know how to make that happen in a small shop. Uh, but I, I'm glad that you were able to make that happen. So tell yeah. us what happened when you got up there. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that is a good point that, that coverage in your local hospital has everything to do with whether you can respond or not. And I happen to be in a large group that has like 30 partners um, that could easily cover, cover, um, you know, frankly, you know, I, I, I'd like to, you know, think that I had this incredible heroic experience going to New York in the midst of this pandemic and, you know, doing all this great work and everything. Um, but, but, but it, it really wasn't like that because, um, you know, I wasn't there living it at the height. You know, the people who who did the the heavy lifting were the New Yorkers, the New York doctors and nurses, and they were the ones who were exposed and um, you know for a lot of the times infected. Um, and by the time I got up to my assignment um, up at this hospital system, um, the numbers had started to decline a, a little bit. They'd they'd already done a lot of the city lockdown, and so the work I did um, in New York was basic ER work. 
you know, so I, I, I went to a shift, I saw patients, you know, I innovated a few people, you know, I learned from them about, you know, the best way to prone, uh, the best medicines to give, I worked with some of their residents. And so really, it wasn't that remarkable, you know, I wasn't doing this like huge, you know, saving lives in the parking lot, you know, in an empty field. <laughs> right. It was, I became a part of the team, and I got plugged into the shift schedule. And I took care of patients. Um, but I think the remarkable part for me was the just the experience of being in New York during a pandemic. Um, in in and I think that's the thing that stuck with me most of anything because I showed up. Um, I think it was April eighth. You know, I showed up my first day there, and the city had been on lockdown, and they put me up in this hotel in Times Square. Um, it was a it was a Holiday Inn in Times Square, and so I got this cab and I drove there, and the street was empty. I mean, completely empty. It's like 9 p.m. And so I went to the middle of Times Square and I stood in the middle of the streets, you know, all this intersection and, I, you know, and there was like neon everywhere. And I just took this like panoramic selfie. With I saw that. Nobody, nobody in the street whatsoever. And so like living in New York for that month was yeah. the most remarkable part of it to Those me. Those pictures were insane. It was almost like the, if you ever saw the Will Smith movie, I Am Legend. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it, it was shocking because I lived in New York. Uh, I rotated at Bellevue. Uh, the Poison Control Center in New York mm -hmm. back in residency. And the whole thing about New York is it's never quiet. There's mm -hmm. always noise. And New York was right. just so quiet. Right. Um, it was interesting to see like what little things came out of that because like I'm staying in this hotel and they closed down, you know, like everything's behind barriers and they closed down their laundry service and every takeout laundry service had been closed. So it's like, you know, my first week there, I'm like, oh shit, how am I going to do laundry? And so like randomly I started posting on Twitter. I was like, I don't know how to do laundry. And like, and I would get these people who would volunteer their apartment building. Like I had That's this amazing, I had this actor who owned an apartment in New York, but I think he lived in Chicago or LA. And he's just like, Hey, my apartment's sitting empty. Why don't you come to my apartment and do this stuff? Or I forgot that. Yes. Cause I was following you then. Yeah. That was pretty like, cool. Right. They, 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 they came up with this, like bartenders were all laid off. And so somebody hooked me up with this bartender who during the pandemic was going to make, you know, this, these new cocktails once a week. And he's going to do this little bicycle delivery thing. And so I, <laughs> I got on this cocktail delivery service. And so I was kind of like, it's just the innovation that people had throughout this and the way that people kind of just started putting people together. And it was like, I don't know you, you know, you don't know me, but here, here's a key to my apartment and, you know, like come in and do it. You know, that's so wild because that's before when New York was on fire, that's before COVID became like this political bullshit. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Toss it back and forth. This was when this, this was, was when people our, believed in it, right? <laughs> well, this was our post nine eleven moment, right? This is when everybody was like, "Holy shit, we've right. got to come together!" And everybody was like, "Doctors and nurses are amazing." And at some point over the next several months, it morphed to, "They're fucking liars," you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and well, you know, yeah, it was, it was. I mean, you know, you, they were still. That was right at the time of the, you know, the seven o'clock healthcare cheer, and you know, you lean out your window, and people would be cheering for you, and everything like that. And then I, it was less than a month later. It's like right when I got home that that um, that doctor, that ER doc, uh, killed herself. You know, um, um, right after that, after having to, yeah. to, to work with. Yeah, she was in upstate New York, right? Yeah, uh, I thought no, was, I think she was in the city, right? Oh, she was. Yeah. And so it was just, it's just such a juxtaposition, you know, and, and I think it was, it was kind of this, it, it was, you're kind of treated as heroes. Like I got profiled in, you know, US news and I got, you know, I got profiled in the Atlanta, you know, Journal Constitution and, you know, all this kind of stuff about how, 
um, you know, how, how heroic, you know, going to New York was and how heroic it was to be this healthcare worker in this pandemic in the, you know, it was a post 9-11 moment. But at the same time, you know, uh, there, there was a lot of misinformation going around about, you know, I think hydroxychloroquine was coming up at that point and the bleach. Ah, the demon semen lady was out. Yeah, the demon semen yeah. lady. Did you just inject some of that good flu vaccine? You know, and, and then, and then, and then, then, you know, a lot of healthcare workers were suffering. And, you know, like, like I said, I was a tourist in New York during the, you know, the, the pandemic, but the people who had to be there for the worst of it and had to live it and see their neighbors and everything dying. I think they, they were probably affected, you know, in horrible ways that I can't imagine. Yeah, yeah. I have used my colleagues, you know, trying to impress upon this middle of the country area. I have used my colleagues, including you who have went to New York and seen it early, you know, as a warning shot, Hey, this is what my friends are seeing. This is what is happening. Right. And, and this is not bullshit. I know it's not here yet, but it's coming because it can't right. not come. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so I used you guys as example. I said, I you mean, know, I was, those I was the same way. And that's the whole reason I went to New York is that I was seeing those stories come out of Northern Italy and, you know, China. I mean, and you see, you know, I forget but that doctor in China who, you know, who basically raised the alarm and then he dies from COVID. He died. Yeah. 35 or whatever he was. And, you know, and, the, and the, the, the people from Milan just weeping, you know, about how how their, their colleagues are dying from this and everything. I mean, you know, it's just like, it, it was. We had this moment right at the beginning of the pandemic where we could have, as this country, you know, responded and come together and done this heroic, you know, greatest generation kind of kind of thing and you know i think i think we we had that in new york for for you know just a speck of time and then it, and it slipped but, through and then uh, trump labeled new york dead despite right. all these kind of cool stories that you're you're telling us about you know the the bartender service and people volunteering right. their apartment like that's that shows that this is one of the greatest cities in there they're right. gonna rally this the city's right. not dead right exactly. it was it was new york you know right. kind of and then and now you know masks don't matter and you know the pandemic's a you know a farce and you know all this kind of stuff so so leadership matters right in all things <laughs> you know you you can it's easy it's easy to dismiss trump you know if you're if you if you're a, if you don't like trump it's easy to dismiss him as a buffoon and this bullshit but regardless he was put in power and we had i think you know in my opinion and certainly probably people who follow me and listen to me and brand, they probably had the same opinion, but there's a lot of my family and friends do not agree with me, but no matter what you believe, leadership matters. Yeah. A, a military unit will fall apart with the same personnel with a command change within a month, you know? Um, and, and I yeah. think we, we just, we got so profoundly unlucky to have the wrong leader at the wrong time. Well, even uh, if it's not a question of policy or anything like that, it's just a question of example. And yeah. And the 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 way you talk about it and the things you say and the you know, uh, but yeah, I agree. With and you could have put all the policies in the world in place, but if you're dividing rather than coming together, then that's not going to help. So, so, uh, so everybody's heard about COVID this whole time. So, I, Brandon, do you have anything? Do you have? Yeah, I, I had a couple more questions. Yeah, so, please. Uh, what went into the actual decision for you to go, as far as uh, your family's concerned? The same thing about um, calling my wife, uh, you know, telling her I ran towards an Ebola patient. Um, you know, it's kind of one of those things. Um, you know, I, I think this has been a little bit of a theme in our marriage. You know, I've, I've been married since college. My wife and I got met in college and, and got married shortly after. Um, and we just, 
I think have gotten to a point in our life and marriage that, you know, one of the first things that we did as a, as a married couple was move across country to go work in a startup company in California. And then when those startup companies failed, um, we decided to give it all up and go to medical school and go into a lot of debt. And so I think we, we both have a sort of sense of adventure, but also a sort of sense of, we know who each other is. We know, you know, what we need in life to keep us satisfied and happy. And um, I think, you know, it's pretty easy decision uh, to say, you know, this is an important thing. I need to do this in my life. I need to be this kind of person. Um, and so I, I, there was never any question <clears throat> when I said, I'm going to go to New York. You know, I said, it, I, asked, I asked, I said, is it okay if I go to New York? And she said, you know, would it be okay if you didn't? You know, <laughs> it's kind of one of those things. She, she just, there's, there's <laughs> please. Right. And so it was just, you know, and we knew there's, a risk, and I was actually a little bit more scared in terms of my own mortality uh, going right. to New York than I was going to um, Africa. And so I think, you know, it was, it was, it was frightening and, and we had to prepare for it, but there was no question of... of I was terrified. Me, yeah, me and Steve have had these conversations before. We both thought, you know, if we... It was an inevitability when we got it, and it was just a matter of if we're going to die or get buried. Yeah, like I, I had this very, I was very for several months, just especially the first couple of when, when, when you were probably in New York, I, I, I got into this fatalistic funk, and I was oh, yeah. like, I am fucked. Like yeah. I'm, I'm not 25, I'm 45, and, and I smoked for 25 years, and, and I don't know what my lungs look like, and, and people are dying like left and right. I'm like, I'm screwed. And, and that bled into every aspect of my life, you know, um, and, and I was, of course, in the middle of the country, I, I was depressed before we ever saw it. So I was like, I was, they were like, you're stupid. This ain't going to be that bad. Yeah. So it turns out I was kind of right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I was pretty right, but I, I'm thankful to be doubly vaccinated. I'll tell you that right now. It's funny how your perception changes because I remember that too. Before I went to New York and all this was happening, you know, I remember just like, does this patient have COVID? Does this patient have COVID? You know, does this patient have COVID? And then I got my first patient with COVID, and I was like, oh my god, and I'm emailing Fuck! people with COVID, and I was just like, I was wearing COVID, but still, I don't know what's going to happen. Right uh, now, it's just kind of like. Oh yeah, that COVID patient just coughed in my face while I was intubating him, and I forgot to, you know, I didn't have my N95 on at the time, or whatever, you know, kind of thing. And so now it's just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> my my very sure. my very first COVID patient was a PCP that sent in a guy for altered mental status for a UTI. Motherfucker had COVID. <laughs> you were not ready. Uh -huh. yeah. I don't think I even had a mask on, and uh, so I got called every day for symptom checks and all that stuff. So getting back to that decision, so saying bye to your wife. Do you have kids? I assume you have kids, do you? Yeah, both my kids are in college. They don't live at home. Like when you were saying goodbye to go to New York, did was it in the back of your head like, hey, I might not be coming yeah. back? Yeah, this like, is the this is the first time I actually wrote letters. So, you know, I did the whole thing where I, you know, I wrote my death letter and sealed it and put it. Oh my God. You did wow. a military deployment thing. Yep. You know, I couldn't yeah. even bring myself to do that when I went to Iraq and Afghanistan. That's wild that you did that. Did no, you it, the funny thing is I think if you read them. Um, I, was, I was getting very drunk while I was doing it. So the first one was to like my son. It's very deep and meaningful. And by the time I got to my wife, which is the third or fourth, you know, third one, it was just like real sloppy and, you know, maudlin. So Love you. Hope I don't die. Did you guys read it as a family uh, when you got back? What's that? Did you guys ever read them as a family when you got back? Um, they're still sealed in my drawer. I think you got to throw those away now, right? You got to throw the death letter away. I had, all right. I had one, one more question now, and then Steve wanted to move on. Um, so when you got to New York, you said that, you know, there'd already been kind of the hump of the very first right. uh, wave and, you know, you get there and you're kind of cresting. 
what was the morale like? You had a lot of, you know, residents and docs that had gotten ill, nurses that had died, you know, what, what was that like when you got there? Um, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as you might think. And again, I'm, you know, I was in one hospital system and, you know, I wasn't in Brooklyn or the Bronx, so I'm not sure, um, you know, some other systems, but at my hospital, at least, um, a number of people had been sick um, already, you know, and, and, and actually a lot of them had already gotten sick and had been out for some length of time. Um, but they were all showing up and, and doing their, their work. It was a, it's a pretty nice, tight knit team. And I think, um, they had a lot of locums people there. And so when they found out like this, I was deployed by the city. So when this hospital found out I was there as a volunteer and I wasn't getting paid, they were actually, I didn't hear of, that part. Yeah. They're, they're like, what? You know, this is wow. shocking to me. And they're, and they're kind of like, I'm like, yeah, I'm here to help. And they're like, what? He's <laughs> like, what are you doing? So I think, I think it was a very, it was a little bit of a spree de corps, you know, kind of thing. Everybody was like, you're in the midst of this, this horrible thing. And, you know, yeah. I didn't it. know you went there for free. That's no, I will tell you a lot of doctors went there for free. And, and that is, I'll be honest with you. That is one of the biggest bullshit things that came out of this early pandemic because, because most of us have a sense of responsibility and when we see shit going off especially as er doctors they know we run to ebola right we're one of the few people who do that and so while they were offering nurses ten thousand dollars a week to travel they were sending me emails asking me to volunteer my time yeah. and, and you know to, to be fair yeah i mean and I, I completely agree i completely agree i think i think a lot of the systems will rely on our sense of you know you know just morality and 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 and, and generosity awesome. to take advantage of it. and i do agree my hospital system i just want to be clear after they found that out found a way to put me on the payroll and they did pay me for half half of my work there but that's fantastic i, I agree i agree that you know that 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 was when i found because i was surprised because i thought everybody there was volunteers and i learned that there were pas and and nurses who were you know getting paid tens of thousands of real dollars. money yeah real money not not that not that you have to have that but but you know, a lot of these things were coming through, you know, third party companies, right? So that these third party companies are getting paid X amount of dollars and they're paying these staff X amount of dollars. And they're like, right. Hey doc, you want to volunteer your time and go potentially risk your life in an unknown disease. And I was like, this is some bullshit. And, and I still wanted to go. I still kind of, I, I was terrified to go, but I wanted to go still. You know, the funny thing was the responses when, cause that, that came up on, on, on the Twitter discussions and, uh, People actually were a little harsh with me for going and volunteering my time. Like I was betraying the um, the profession a little bit, and not well, the money. And I think there was a little bit of a, you know, people are obviously very grateful, but there, there was a subset of people who kind of, you know, were, were a little bit shitty about it. Well, you know, there's always a subset of people because it, it's funny because when we're not on the same page about our value and our worth, I, I get it. I get both sides. Uh, I was offended that they asked somebody contacted me and asked me to volunteer because I was still in the middle of holy shit I'm going to die from this thing. Uh, and I was like, "You're asking me to go do it for free?" I was like, "I still got a wife and kids, right, right. And stuff, you know." Yeah, I had a one and a three year old when this all started. So my wife, if, if, if COVID didn't kill me, would have killed me when I got back. So <laughs> right. So so you're a lead. I mean, clearly through all this, through your life, um, you've been a kind of a risk taker and a and a leader. Um, and, uh, so then all of a sudden, so you decided, Hey, I'm jumping to, I, I'm, I'm leaving my, my cushy halls of medicine gig at IU, uh, and I'm going to go out on my own and I'm going to start a new program from scratch in a County, in a state 
that is basically has values antithetical to my background and my history. And you said, screw it. I'm going, I'm setting up shop. Yes, so tell yes. us how you got to there. Yes. However, Georgia's blue and Indiana's red. So ah, that's <laughs> he got Touché, you. brother. Touché. <laughs> well, no, no, I'll tell you about that. Um, after I moved here, by the way, me and Stacey Abrams, we, you know, we did it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to start. <laughs> so, no, um, it was just one of those things, you know, I, like I said, I wanted to be in residency leadership. Um, and I was at IU. Um, but, you know, I also had this background of, you know, I'd been in these software startups, I had this kind of entrepreneurial bent that I don't think I even was able to identify in myself early in my career, like I had designed my own fellowship, um, and, and whatnot. And so I think, you know, after, after I spent about four or five years at IU, I was really getting to the point where I was like, I need to have something that is my own, you know, and I need to, you know, kind of be able to put my own stamp on, on things. And I need to be able to implement some, some big idea things, which you can't do in a large academic institution, you know, you can make incremental changes. And um, it, it already was a very, very good program. And so there's no room there to make this big sweeping kind of changes. And so in, you know, for other reasons in life, um, my, my wife and I just decided it's time to shake things up. You know, you, you have to, you know, kind of go and do something big and something new. And, you know, through a series of, of, of processes, we, we kind of found this gig here in Northeast Georgia. And, um, you know, aside from the, the small town political environment um, here, uh, the, the job is fantastic. I, you know, the, my, my emergency department is just as robust and as busy as the inner city one I was working in, in, in Indianapolis. The hospital's great. My colleagues are great. Um, and, and there's just a ton of opportunity here. So I was, I was really excited to come down here. That's really cool. So, but you've been faced with, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Brandon. I was going to say, what are some of these road bumps that you, you've hit now? Your speed bumps, sorry, that you've hit with uh, starting this. Well, you know, I mean, the first one was COVID, you know, we, right. so the, the way you get a program approved uh, by the ACGME is you have to submit an application and then they send a site visitor to inspect your site and interview everybody and make sure everything's okay. And I was um, on the cusp, my site visit to get this program approved was on something like March 15th, right? When everybody decided to cancel all sort of interstate <laughs> travel. Um, and so I was the first one to get my site visit canceled. And then it took them three or four months to reschedule it. And we had to do it through Zoom. And then, um, you know, I was, I was supposed to be, inter you know, I was supposed to get this approval at the end of August and then start interviewing this fall. And then it got declined because my application wasn't robust enough. And I didn't have some, there were some, you know, pediatric experiences I was lacking. Um, and so it was just kind of this up and down, you know, the whole reason I came here was to start this program and then my initial application got declined. Um, and so it kind of, it, the, the, the whole year was a, a little bit of a bummer and, 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 you know, I just didn't, it didn't go the way I, I had anticipated going or, or, or planned on it going, but, you know, thankfully yes. I, I got it resubmitted and I just had my second site visit. And so hopefully I will okay. get approval in April. So that's yeah, the, that's the things. you're going you're hoping for approval in April. So yeah, so that's that's great. It, that, it's, there's so much behind the scenes bullshit. And yeah, you certainly picked a terrible year to start a program. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's got to be so frustrating, you oh, know, yeah. going for well, they did all, you know, they, they just transitioned this year to all residency interviews online. So I kind of, you know, I, I'm actually a little bit grateful that I missed this whole kerfuffle with, you know, having to try to recruit a class of interview, you know, sure. just by meeting them on zoom. Um, and so We'll Super frustrating. So who supported So you're just down there with your wife. Your kids are grown. 
Yep, um, my kids are both gone. involved. Yep. My wife, we moved, yeah, moved and, and three dogs. Ah, nice. Yeah. I got a pandemic dog, actually. Um, so, What'd you yeah. get? <laughs> At the beginning of the pandemic, I got a new puppy. So. I've got a dog who's a fucking pandemic. I'll tell you that. So <laughs> well, he's the- Steve, I, I think our dogs are clones. My my dog, Doug, is a golden retriever, too. He's a total asshole. He gets yeah, into he's an asshole. Oh, name, Doug. No, my, mine, is, mine is Charlie, oh, and, uh, and he is uh, he is a challenge. Uh, that is for sure. Yeah, Man, like you posted that uh, that thing of the, the dog eating your chili. The same thing happened chili. to Bieber with pizza. He ate it yeah. right in front of me. I'm sitting I'm sitting three feet from me. Jumps on the counter and eats the pizza. We're yeah. still smelling Charlie's chili farts. And then uh, the next day, he got into my. Uh, we went up to visit my daughter in college and we got some really good Indian food and I had some leftover uh, biryani and uh, I set it in the garage by mistake and I left and let the dog out the front door. And 30 seconds later, I was like, shit, my food. And he <laughs> ate this whole styrofoam box full of oh, yeah, uh, Indian sure. foods, the super spiced. <laughs> and we're still living with the freaking gas. It's awful. <laughs> Yeah, man. So what a what a wild and cool career, Josh. I'm so glad I'm so glad that we got to talk to you. Um, I'm certain that there's absolutely nobody listening to this, and you just wasted an hour of your life. But but <laughs> but but for me, uh, I'm super stoked because you're like a celeb to me, right? Because uh, I'm a Twitter baby and you're a Twitter daddy. So uh, so <laughs> I've been watching you. Not even born yet. Uh, yeah, I've been watching you for a minute. But that that is such a double-edged sword, you know. Like you know, being on, being on Twitter, it's like so much. The more popular you get, the more you just attract the most vicious and weird, you know, people. It's like people will disagree with you about everything, and like the whole the whole Twitter thing has been such a learning experience to me too. Because it's like, yeah, you just you know, you throw some random shit out there, you talk about your program, you talk about things you like. And all of a sudden, people are just coming at you for the yeah. Like that's the one that you're going to attack me for. You know, I've been super blessed. My my the my Twitter experience has been basically I try to say something profound and it completely falls into silence. Right. And then I will say something that I just think of on the spur of the moment and it will go completely viral. <laughs> you know. Uh, but luckily, I've avoided most of the trolls. I've got. You know, certainly there's some people out there. I've got a lot of people ask like that slide into my DMs asking me medical questions or wanting, yeah. you know, wanting to say things. But so far, I've at least avoided the like complete and total hate, which has been nice. Yeah, which is surprising given kind of your platform on Brian. Well, Williams. I'm super loud, yeah, and Josh is loud too. Jo- I mean, Josh is super loud on Twitter. I mean, especially for an academic doc, you know, uh, stuck in the middle of Georgia. Uh, I think that's I think that's why I like you so much because I identify with you because we're both, you know, your standard white dude ER doc stuck in like in this red counties with really kind of at least for locally progressive ideas and we're not quiet about them. Yeah. So my wife is my wife is convinced that I'm going to get a, get us killed. Uh, basically. Well, you have a coworker that's already kind of, you know, postured a little bit. I've gotten, yeah. some, I've gotten some private messages from some of my uh, colleagues, you know, kind of like, hey, you know, maybe dial it back because you still have to, you know, train people in this this region and whatnot. Right. It's, it, it's a fine balance, you know, especially when you sense, because I, I sense about you, Josh, that you are very, very attuned to what you perceive as injustice yeah. in the world. Right. And you feel like you need to address it. Uh, yeah, and I appreciate that in you, and 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 I tr- I'm trying to be that person. But I mean, um, I think I think most 
ER docs who are present in their job can't help but be into, uh, attuned to injustice. I mean, we see it every day. I mean, whether it's, you know, lack of affordable care or people who can't care for themselves or lack of medical education or just, you know, violence against each other. It's like, I think we, we you know, I, I had a chair who once said this, um, that we are on the front lines of every social ill in this country. And so it's like, I think if you're an ER doc and you are not attuned to injustice, then you're just not paying attention. I mean, it's just there with us all the time. That, that's that's exactly it. I know plenty of them that, that are like that. Oh, oh me too. Head, head in the stand. <laughs> it's not even that they're not present. I, I think they maybe don't care. No. Yeah, no, I've always been told, I, I was told, you know, I always read the the kind of the classic thing that at, the older you, you know, you start out your life as a college student with like with this idealized liberalism. And then as you get older and experience life and you make money, you, then you become a conservative. And my journey has been entirely the opposite. And a, a large part of that has been emergency medicine. And just every day seeing I'm like, wait, why didn't you buy your insulin? Like, yeah. you know, Wait, yeah. you died of lung cancer because you fell through the cracks after a nodule two years ago that we begged you to follow up on, but you couldn't afford it. And if you right. can't see that, it just, I can't. Emergency medicine, like, yeah, I mean, it can either be a job to you, you know, and you show up and you see patients and you take care of them and you probably do a good job at it. Sure. Uh, but I think for some of us, I mean, emergency medicine has fundamentally affected who I am. And I, I mean, just like that, you know, and it's like, it has, it has radicalized me, you know, it's just yeah. like, <laughs> that's I, exactly right. Yeah quiet you know after being er doc and seeing what i've seen you know like somebody told me once because i'm not a very religious person somebody told me once it's like you know someday you need to find jesus and i'm like i'm the closest to finding somebody <laughs> it's like i work among you know <laughs> you know patients it's like i i walk where jesus walked i mean it's like this did is you do you say i literally washed somebody's feet last <laughs> night as part of my job. it's like you're telling me i need to find jesus i'm like come on man like, oh yeah i get told that a lot so by and, and for all of our listeners i don't know josh uh terribly well on a personal level but i'm not terribly religious is what i say a lot to my patients which means basically full-blown freaking atheist and we're afraid to say it because we <laughs> we live amongst the religious uh at least that's for me so yeah so we've probably this podcast is probably 17 hours long and and uh brandon will have to edit this down um to nothing but i i'm super stoked i'm super glad to have met you, you like one of these guy. days one of these days drinks are on me for sure absolutely uh, yeah what are you uh, drinking over there uh, so i started with a beer but i ran out you know pretty pretty quickly on so i actually um have this little flask of yamazaki or yama yeah yam, yamazaki yamazaki 12 year old Good. Was, Japanese whiskey. It, this was a gift from the um, the group at Metropolitan Hospital for me being there. So this is oh, this very cool. nice, That's very a, nice. nice bottle. Yeah, I've drank a Diet Pepsi, a Bud Light, a Michelob Ultra, and a Pacifico while we sat yeah. here and shot the shit. I ain't fancy, man. Uh, yeah. Only five so, o'clock here. I couldn't. I couldn't get myself to start yet. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Josh, thanks so much for your time. Brandon, do you have any more questions? I think we've probably exhausted. We're good, this man. Guy. I appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, keep doing Super what you're doing. Cool. Yes, Super cool. Thanks, Josh. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. We're rooting for you. If you guys are ever in the Atlanta area, just look me up and uh, I'd be happy to host you. For sure. Absolutely. And we'll be watching for your uh, residency approval. And then I will look for you to make me your first uh, mega ultra attending on your staff. Uh, yeah, you guys should do, totally do guest lectures. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. All right, man. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon, Josh. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. Thank you guys. All right.
Well, I hope you all enjoyed the fourth installment of the Burnt Podcast where we got to see Steve fangirl out over uh, Josh. I'm pretty sure he logged off and immediately started the Josh Mugle fan club where he's not just the president but the founding member. Um, he never mentioned uh, me making fun of him last week at the end of the episode, so I'm going to continue to do it. Uh, love the guy, um, but come on. He needs to get knocked down a peg. It's really great. Um, if you enjoyed the podcast, please like, comment, follow. Uh, if there's anything that we should change, don't hesitate to tell us. We're learning as we go. Thank you. Do you ever just feel burnt out?